Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Chibundo Unuzo, the author of three novels. She began writing her debut, The Spider King's Daughter, when she was still a teenager and was the youngest ever woman signed by its eventual publisher, Faber. The novel was nominated for multiple prizes, including the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Commonwealth Book Prize, and it won a Betty Trask Award. Her second novel, Welcome to Lagos, was published in 2017, and her third, Sankofa, will be published next month by Virago. Chibundo was elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and she also has a PhD in history from King's College London. Welcome to our shelves, Jabundu. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, today, listeners are getting a bit of a sneak peek of your new novel, Sankofa, because they won't have had the chance to read it yet. So before we get into our main questions, I was hoping you might be able to give us a little taster, um, tell our listeners what, uh, what the new novel is about, please. So it's about a woman called Anna. She's in her late 40s and her mother is recently deceased. Mm. And she discovers that her father is still alive and living in West Africa. So she's never met her father before, never known him before. Mm. But she discovers amongst her mother's things, her father's diary. And so it sort of leads her on this quest to find her father. And the story sort of, the story idea came to me because I met a lot of people like who had a similar story. So in particular, the person who the novel is dedicated to, Joseph Harker, you know, his mm-hmm. father was a student um, and came over to England. And that's sort of a little bit of his, of his family story. And, and, I, and when I was researching on the West African Students Union, I came across quite just a few people who had stories like this, like their fathers had come over as students and, and then for whatever reason had gone back and then there'd been this split. Um, yeah. 
it's fascinating. I was going to ask you about how much sort of research you had to do, particularly into um, sort of African, West African um, students in London during the 1970s and that element of sort of being radicalised by their involvement in politics. I mean, how much of that were, I don't want to give too much about the story away, obviously, for, for listeners who haven't had the chance to read it yet, but sort of those elements of it, did you find yourself going down sort of real research rabbit holes or were you very much... Um, did you find yourself being uh, sort of taken very much by the stories of these individual people that you were you were drawing on? I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of it is based on my PhD research, not on actual individuals, but sort of on what I just read. I read a lot of student memoirs um, of African students because um, okay. I was looking at this group in particular called the West African Students Union, which contributed to nationalist movements in West Africa. So people ah. like Kwame Nkrumah, he was the first president of Ghana. He was very active in the West African Students Union. So um, I was studying this group. So it was like, I can't just put all this research in my PhD, which nobody is going <laughs> to read, like 10 people, or maybe five. <laughs> um, so much good material there, right? Exactly, my mom. Um, so yes, I thought, no, this research certainly can't be wasted. And then when I started meeting people who actually had the real life story, I think sort of meeting people who this was their story and then doing the deep dive into the research. Um, and the, the memoirs that these students left behind, they're sort of incredibly revealing. So a lot of them came from countries where it would have been taboo to have had any sort of relationship with a white woman. Mm. So it was almost a sort of rite of passage when you come to England. You know, I remember reading one memoir um, and allegedly he was sort of, there was one student that came from America and, and they'd come from the Jim Crow South, but they were an African student. And so they got to London and they were like, we have to find you a white woman. This is your rite of passage. You know, you can, wow. you can now walk with a white woman in the streets without sort of fear of being lynched and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yes, I found that sort of aspect um, interesting. It was um, there a lot of interesting stories. Yeah. And how was it to write those sort of, I don't want to quite, call it historical fiction because the 1970s is still relatively recent but those sort of period piece elements to kind of uh, capture that world in the novel did you find that very different to the sort of writing you'd done previously or did it all just come quite naturally I think Francis Agra's voice came naturally because I'd read so many student memoirs and I sort of when I was thinking of how to tell the story it was sort of a thing that I thought about a lot with myself and I thought about a lot with my editors, how much of the book to put in his voice. Right. Um, and to be honest, I didn't want to put too much of the book in his voice because it almost didn't feel like I was writing. It almost it felt very, I think ventriloquist or maybe pastiche is the word. I just didn't feel like I okay. could tell a whole book in that voice because it felt like I was I was pretending because literally I was just continuing the style of so many of these memoirs and first-person accounts that I read. And I also um, did um, interviews with um, a lot of people who had been members of the WASI. And I think what's really interesting is, because they often had quite colonial education, so their style is quite formal and they have sort of quite an elevated way of speaking English and they're very grammatically correct and their pronunciation and all this sort of stuff. Right. Um, so also sort of, making the character of Francis Agra. I think those sections, I most of them I read them in one go. I didn't I just sort of wrote them because I'd read so many things things in that sort of style. That's fascinating. Were you ever at any point did you consider writing the novel from his point of view entirely? Like in or was it always a case of you wanted there to be 
that little bit of distance perhaps between his voice and the voice of you you know the person you, you thought you could kind of speak more readily about their experiences the other characters mm. so the problem i thought with writing everything in his point of view would have been that once he returns to west africa and enters into politics i feel like that story we know that story you know and that story yeah, I was less interested in that story. I've seen it before, sort of yeah. African politician with high hopes. You know, you have a man of the people by Chinua Achebe, for example. I've sort of seen that trajectory before. So I was I was less interested in, um, in how, how he would present himself once he sort of actually entered into politics. I and mean, I was more interested in his idealistic stage. And also because I'd met these people who were children of... Um, African students who'd come over and then gone back home. I was also very interested in their stories as well. So it's like, right, enough of you, Francis. And Anna, you can take the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and also very differently, I suppose, to your two previous novels. I think um, I, I, I suspect I'm not alone in that readers of your first two novels, Lagos is such an important part yeah. of those books. I mean, you know, obviously, Welcome to Lagos, it is yeah. a book about the city as much as anything else. The Spider King's Daughter is set there. Um, and so I must admit, a little bit of me was sort of sad to not be back in the Lagos that you write <laughs> about because you write about it and bring it to life so brilliantly on the page. Um, but this is obviously a bit of a departure for you, writing yeah. um, specifically, you know, the story begins in London. Obviously, it then moves to West Africa, but it's not, you know, it's not, um, I imagine it's very much based on, you know, uh, certain West African countries, but we're not in one that we immediately recognise or mm-hmm. so it's a bit different for you. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what it was like to um, to leave Lagos behind this time round. Hmm. That is interesting. What was it like to leave Lagos behind? I think I wanted to write something set in London because mm-hmm. I've lived here for so long now. So I've lived in England for 16 years now. Wow. Um, and I've done a lot of, so I moved from Nigeria when I was 14. Uh, and I've done a lot of, or quite a bit, I've started sort of writing short fiction set in England. Mm. But I was like, hmm, I want to tackle something longer now. Um, right. And I want to put my part of London in a novel. It's sort of what Zadie Smith does for her area. <laughs> so like the one, one of the... Um, the council estate in the book is a real council estate and it's not too far from my house. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, for example, sort of it's in my air, it's in my ends. Um, so I certainly wanted to um, wanted to write about um, an area that I was familiar with in London. Yeah, something um, that was personal to you. Something else, and just sort of places I was interested in. So like sort of the the British Museum and like going to the mm. Africa bit in the British Museum and seeing the artifacts there, the stolen artifacts there. But yes. they're not all stolen. Some of them were legally purchased, but others were not. Um, Quite a lot were stolen. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, others were not, and we're still trying to get them back. Thank you very mm. much. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, I wanted to write, um, I mean that Russell Square area where she goes to do it. She goes to the British um, Library. Spent many an hour doing my PhD research in the British Library. So I wanted yeah. to put some of my my London haunts sort of in a book. Um, but as to leaving Lagos when she got to a West African country, so like I considered making the country in the novel a real one, mm. and I was like, no, 
because I don't know anywhere in West Africa as well as I know Nigeria. So somebody mm-hmm. who's actually from that country is going to come for me and tell me uh, <laughs> why <laughs> this is not how it is or this is okay. not what it looks like. So I saw so. So Bamana is a fictional country, but it's a real historical place. So, so mm. for example, um, um, the Gold Coast, former Gold Coast, now present-day Ghana. It used to be called the Gold Coast. Um, And Kwame Nkrumah, when Ghana became independent, named the country after an ancient West African kingdom called Ghana. So that's how he got the name for his country. So in my made-up country, formerly called the Diamond Coast, um, then it's named after an ancient West African kingdom called Bamana. Which is, so Ghana, ancient Ghana is not where geographical Ghana is located today. And so it's sort of same for my own sort of fictional country. Um, and then also I did things like put, because a lot of the lines in Africa, they're, the, the, the border lines, they're, they're made up, they're not, they're not real. Literally mm-hmm. people took lines, Europeans took lines after the Berlin Conference and just sort of, some of the lines are literally straight, <laughs> you know, literally just, and they right. cut different ethnic groups apart. They cut they cut language groups apart, and so on and so forth. So it's very common in in many parts of Africa to see people who speak the same language, have the same culture, but they're separated by border. Um, okay. And so in this, my social fictitious con- country, so I have different ethnic groups that are also present in West Africa because that's what happened. You have Yoruba people in Nigeria, for example, and you also have Yoruba people in Benin Republic, um, mm. and so on and so forth. And um, so yes, I sort of tried to make it as real and as grounded in reality as possible without actually being um, a real place. Um, Did you find that sort of freeing? Was there was there something freeing about that as well? Was it? I don't know. Was it scary not having to write about something you knew and make something up, or was it actually quite freeing when you realised that you could, you know, you wanted to keep it realistic? I realise, obviously, but there must have been something there that was kind of exciting as well about making up a new a new country like this. I think I realised like the limits of my imagination. I have to give it to <laughs> fantasy writers who like make up whole languages and like literally every yeah. time I would come to like a new town or I wanted to name something so usually as a placeholder I would call it a name of a city that actually exists in West Africa okay. um, but the problem with that was that it was literally like calling a made-up place New York and the real New York has so many associations that, you know, you can't just call somewhere in a middle place New York. Um, so, yes, there was a lot of, like, stress thinking, what am I going to call this? So, for example, my friend Kina, who I, I give a, a shout out to in the acknowledgement, sort of helps me make up names. So, like, Mensa Crow, you know, or Kina Crow. Or, like, I was like, I can't think of any names for things. This is really difficult. And shout out to Tolkien and, you know, those guys. Yeah, it's I love this the idea as a novelist you're saying I, I really struggled with making these basic things up about it it's actually very heartening to hear that that I guess because it those are the things that you know need to ring true right you mm-hmm. need to make them work for the rest mm-hmm. of the, the world to be built around it mm-hmm. yeah, yeah definitely and also you know sometimes with like you know like African things people just like do like you want it to be grounded in reality like people just make up some 
nonsense like Bogadinga and that, that's a place yes. there is not a place <laughs> um, yeah and you know we love Black Panther but you know Wakanda still kind of looking at you with his side eye you know so like <laughs> you know <laughs> okay. you, you know you um you wanted to sound to sort of sound real and I yes. suppose you see this in like um, people who make up languages for books and things maybe they'll sort of ground it in Welsh or something or ground mm. it in and you know something or ground it in Norwegian or something um or ground it in Greek actually that's quite common as well um so yes I tried to ground all the names that I came up with in West African languages and yeah at the end of the day nobody come for me because it's a fake country okay so <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, hopefully that gives our listeners a little bit of a taste of what they've got in store. Let's move on to some of the other questions I'd like to ask you today. Um, first of all, I would like you to tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table, please. Okay, so Everything Good Will Come by Sefiata is just like always somewhere around me. And I think <laughs> this book is criminally underrated. I reread it like once a year it's my relationship with it is kind of weird I, and i've met the author a few times and mm. i'm sure she's kind of like what's wrong with this girl like i really like the bible <laughs> like, you know um, you're her biggest I, fan <laughs> i am i am one of her biggest fans i also do read the bible as well but i also read sepiatas everything good will come and it's basically the story of two female friends two girlfriends um and it's all and Sherry, and it follows them from their childhood all the way to their adolescence, all the way to their adulthood and sort of their families and having children and all of that. And it's basically Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan sort of series, but condensed into one book. So you don't have to read like 1,500 pages or however many that series is to get that same satisfying sort of birth to sort of middle age that Ferrante does. And I yeah. think it's just such a virtuosic, virtuosic i don't know i i do, my my english is running out to describe how amazing <laughs> how amazing this book is and i just think it should be it should be read everywhere and it's just so great on female friendships and the dynamics of that and exactly what Fer ferrante did actually in that series mm. but um sefi did hers like i don't know maybe like a decade before so groundbreaking yeah. Um, and yeah, just that the dynamics of female friendships, like the bond, the close bonds, but also the jealousy and sort of one friend is considered prettier than the other and right. sort of how they navigate that and sort of, yeah. Um, so is this something, when did you first read this book? You say you are, it's always close by to you. Do you remember when you first read it? And as you reread it, do you go back to it and read it um, in its entirety? Do you read sort of bits of it when you're feeling like you need some inspiration or some comfort? Or how, what's, how's your relationship with it changed over the years? Hmm. So I read it for the first time maybe when I was like 13 or 14. And then I was just like, this is amazing. Um, and it captures Lagos so well. Like, Sefiata does Lagos really, really well. She's great at dialogue, great at sort of picking up the different ways people speak according to class, according to ethnicity. Um, and so it sort of it was sort of like a blueprint for how to write about Lagos, um, writing, writing okay. about Lagos like an insider. Um, and, and making sure you have those details. So writing like an insider, not a tourist. And so you're not writing for people who don't know the place. You're writing for people who do know the place. So when they see something, they're like, ah, oh, I recognize that. Um, and, and then I just started, most times, you know, 
it's because it's so difficult to find a good book. I've been doing a lot of rereading in the pandemic. It's so difficult, you know. So, like, when you've read a book that sort of hits all the right notes, I'm the kind of person I can eat the same thing every day from Monday <laughs> to Friday as long as it's good. So it's like when I pick up everything good will come, I know this is going to be a good meal. So it doesn't matter if I've eaten it before. It's like I like my right. jollof rice and chicken and my plantain because it's going to hit the spot every time. Um, so, yeah. Everything good gone. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's such a shout out for it if anyone hasn't had the joy of reading it yet. Um, and what's the second book that you're going to tell us about, please? Um, so I chose The Beginning of Spring just because I've just finished reading that. Hmm. Penelope Fitzgerald. I discovered her in the library. Libraries are very important, especially when you don't have money to buy new books. And I'd never yeah. heard of her before the first one I read of hers. I think it was the bookshop. And I was like, mm. who is this woman? Like, and I don't know why this is so interesting because the premise is so dull. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> I don't, um, she's sort of like the bard of the ordinary. And I don't know if you, and people sort of, I've heard sort of, I've read sort of people writing about her. I think, you know, A.S. Bayer sort of asked, I don't know how she does it. And you don't know, you read it and yeah. you're like, this is so compelling, this is so interesting, this is so funny. But if anybody asked you, you what the bookshop, literally, no spoiler alert, sort of a middle-aged woman buys a bookshop, it's not very successful. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like, you know, the most gripping of reads, but it is. Um, and the beginning of spring is sort of similar. So you find out at the beginning that a wife has left her husband with her children and that actually she's returned the children. And actually, okay, there's a bit of sort of interest. They're British people, they're English people in Russia. Um, but it's set in Moscow, yeah. isn't it? In like 1913, yeah, yeah, 1914, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's yeah. set just before it's all going to go bottoms up, which is another thing that, Pen it's an another point that Penelope Fitzgerald like to sort of set the story in. Like things are about to fall apart and your main characters mm. are oblivious and making plans for a future that you can see is doomed. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and are you going to go on to read more? You say you've read the bookshop, but have you read other of her works after this? Are you going to go and read more? I have. I've, I've, I think I have read most of her. Most of she has one set in the, okay, you have set in the BBC. She has, I think, where mm. angels tread or something. One of them like that. I've read most of most of her, most of her things. Her and the other Penelope, Penelope Lively. Yeah, they're yes. pretty. They're pretty good. They're, they're very yeah. good. Penelope, Penelope, I feel, is like a high point. If you're if the writer's called Penelope, there's a, a strong chance they're going to be a good, you're going to get a yeah, good novel, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> That's brilliant, then. Um, and next up, I wanted to ask you, I think you're going well, to tell me about a recent podcast that you've been listening to um, that's made you think, aren't you? Mm. I love, <laughs> it's called The Last Three Digits. Um, and it's two guys and a girl. And they're just, they're, they're basically like a finance podcast. So they're supposed to be a finance podcast. And they sort of talk about like saving money and sort of um, not spending all your money on Deliveroo. And they sort of, sort of like finance, <laughs> financial tips for, for millennials. Financial. <laughs> um, so stuck at home during well, the pandemic. Yes, exactly. Don't waste all your money on Deliveroo. In, in a very accessible way. Um, and so one of them sort of okay. has Bola Soul. She has this slogan, there's rice at home, which is like, it's like a Nigerian way of saying, don't spend your money 
in Nando's because there's okay. rice at home, basically. So get home okay. and boil the rice in your house. Um, it's never as good, though. It's never as good when you boil it yourself. It's cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I clearly need to listen to this yes, podcast. Yes, I think so. you do. But then they also do a lot of, like, banter and, like, sort of... Um, so they had, like, a recent episode called The Economics of Cheating. Um so yes basically how i think they conclude that cheating is expensive um, <laughs> well, so wait you have to speak tell me a bit more about this like cheating is cheating. expensive so because the economics of infidelity basically because you're going to be sort of investing money in two separate relationships um so it, it's costly that's so weird i mean like that makes sense. That's also I love that as being the idea that don't cheat because listen to this podcast that tells you it's really expensive. Yeah, it's really, and you're just from a, a financial angle, you know, break up with one before you move on to the next, or else, yeah. That sounds really hilarious. Do they often choose things that are slightly? I mean, because I must admit, when I sort of looked into this, when I saw that this was what you were going to recommend, it's not something I've listened to, and I thought a podcast about finances <laughs> that doesn't sound particularly interesting. <laughs> But you're making it sound much more compelling. So do they often choose quite a sort of unexpected th- uh, topics to come um, up? So they do a range of things. So like they will generally do things that are trending in social media. Um, so there okay. was this sort of, I don't know, American reality star or something who was cheating on his, his wife or something. And so ah. then they decided to do an episode on the economics of cheating just for your average layperson who may be considering, you know, they're like, this is, this is going to be the financial implications. You may not meet your financial <laughs> targets for this year. <laughs> if you go down that lane. <laughs> okay. This sounds great. And how did you first come across it? How did you first hear of it? I, think I follow one of the three, um, Bola Store. I follow mm-hmm. her on like Instagram and I think, yeah, she's like, Oh, I'm now doing this podcast. Um, and amazing yeah and just all the things about like sort of you know going on holidays with your friends and the economics of that or going going to dinner with your friends and because you're a bit broke like you order like a starter and then the bill comes and they're like okay so guys shall we split the bill and you're like no (laughs) we shall not split my tap water (laughs) yes Wait, do they give you tips and hints on how to actually deal with situations like that? Um, you know, they, they sort of, they do. And then they sort of say from their own experiences about how you need to be firm. If you can't afford it, okay. you can't afford it and all of that. I, it's, it's really good. It's fun, but you sort of learn stuff um, as well. I feel like I need to listen to this now. You sold it to me. I, I, I need someone to take my finances in order. And this sounds like the people who could do it. So that's great. Thank you very much. Our shells will be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Jibundu Onuzo about the... Uh, the economics of cheating or not cheating. That's what we've worked out. You shouldn't do it because it's very costly. <laughs> um, next up, uh, Jibundu, could you tell me about a novel that's made you think about feminism in a new way? So it has to be The First Woman by Jennifer Makumbi. She's an absolute legend. Mm. Um, her first book, Chintu, amazing. Collection of short stories, amazing. And then now she has this book, which I, again, I think everybody should read. And I don't, it should be everywhere. Um, so it's basically it's very recent it was only published mm-hmm, last year mm-hmm. wasn't it it was only published last year and I like a good coming of age so like the main character Karabo you start from her childhood and you go all the way up till mm-hmm. she's sort of like on the cusp of sort of becoming an adult I think maybe about to go into university and you follow her through school and there's a woman in her village who introduces her to this concept of Mwen Kano Kano I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly but <laughs> I'm not Uganda but it's basically a women's rights movement that has existed in Uganda from pre-colonial times and sort of women sort of the work they've done together to sort of lift each other up and support each other um and this has always sort of been a problem that I have with um with um western feminism to sort of how exclusionary it is um and how sort of certain narratives are often cut out so even sort of the terminology that is used when i when i sort of you hear about western feminism sort of like the first wave and the second wave and the sort of the the Mm. gains that they say were made in each wave so for example if you're talking about like oh women getting the vote um you know wow okay that's a triumph for women in the west and yes it is but at the same time sort of women in england are struggling to get the vote in sort of the early 1900s in Nigeria, in 1914, you're having the Abba Women's War, where the women are literally leading an independence movement. And so it's like, well, so, so who is, quote and unquote, leading in, in sort of women's rights? And I think there's just this idea of, there's a lot of sort of imperialism and colonialism woven into feminism. And I mean, I, I, um, I, when I was doing my PhD research, I did a chapter on women, on West African women who sort of come to the UK. Um, And it was a thing that sort of came up repeatedly, sort of being pitied by the women they sort of came across, like, oh, you know, African women are still oppressed or this, that and the other, Mm. or sort of, yeah, just this sort of pity. These are assumptions that are made um, and that you can only learn from women in a certain context. 
and you know it's, it's women in the west that teach other women how to be quote unquote free and all of that and so yes i don't sort of yeah buy into all that sort of stuff um so i love um the first woman for centering sort of the historical african sort of women's movement um and i mean some people prefer the term womanism and i think that's um mm. that's what um when Kanu Kanu is sort of bringing to the fore the women's movement that has existed in Uganda for so long. And was this something that you knew about before you read the book? I mean, did you know much about the historical sort of underpinnings of it or were you learning about it afresh from this novel? No, I was completely learning about it from this novel. Um, so, okay. I, and the thing is, again, but I know that I've always known that there must be things like this in other African societies, because just looking at Nigeria, mm -hmm. where I come from, for example, um, you know, women have organized. I've talked about the about women's um, war, for example. They were organizing when the men were too afraid to organize. They literally like beat up policemen. <laughs> they, they, they wrecked jails like they were like they were <laughs> they were militants. Um, and in like Nigeria and the southwestern part, you have Fumilaya Ransom Kuti um, and sort of what she did with the women in Abelkuta. And they deposed the king. They deposed the king from their own organization. Um, and there's just been wow. this long, long history. One thing I think that has been missing from whenever I sort of encounter feminism in this context is the assertion that or the realization that women are different from other women. So I think what we do is that we rush to women are equal to men, but we don't mm. sort out the women are different from other women. And then that's where you right. have all the sort of infighting and the, oh no, you're a bad feminist, so no, you're not doing it right, et cetera, et cetera, that, this, that, and the other. Whereas I think um, what I like about when you read about sort of indigenous women's movements, a lot of the time you see that they cut across class, for example. So, um, well, the other women's war, it was mostly women who were traders. That was very specific. But if you look at when Kano Kano, as presented in Jennifer Makumbi's novel, it's sort of, it's something that cuts across class. Um, and in the, mm -hmm. in the case in Abelkuta where Fumilayo Ransom Kuti led the movement, yes, she was an educated woman, but it was a lot of, she was a Western educated woman, but it was a lot of women who were not from her class organizing together to then sort of depose the okay. king. Um, and I think it's that sort of women are, are different from each other. I think that's sort of what's, what's missing and i feel like especially sort of in this context there's always a sort of new strain of feminism that is being attacked mm. by another strain of feminism so now currently under attack i'm reading this article about you know why girl boss feminism is bad and this and i was like leave the girl yes. bosses if the, let the, those who want to be girl bosses and let the girl bosses <laughs> let those who don't want to be girl bosses let them not be girl bosses like what is this also there's always this sort of there's a right way and you know you're doing it the wrong way and this is the right way uh, and i just think that's a sort of counterproductive when there are actually so many real problems that both the girl bosses mm. and the not girl bosses also we all face you know like and it was so it was so terrible and so sad and um, with what happened to um you know sarah everard and anybody who sort of walked gone walking at night yeah both girl bosses and non-girl bosses we all know we all we all know that sort of fear and that struggle and mm. for us to unite and i think you do have to learn from countries that are more um, and I think that's a, one thing you see in a lot of of countries that were former colonies. So one thing that we don't always get it right, but you have to acknowledge 
the diversity, for example, in a place like Nigeria, there's 256 languages spoken. So, you know, there's a phrase that we have, um, strength in diversity, a lot. In, we have it in Nigeria just to sort of try and create a sort of national identity out of all our different sort of ethnicities. And you need to see the same mm. in sort of the feminist movement, or else there's always going to be somebody that is being attacked. Oh, this person this and this person that. And, you know, there's, there's a scripture that I love in the bible where jesus says a house divided against itself cannot stand and that's that's what often what i sort of see in this sort of when you come across feminism in this context is that this house is still divided <laughs> you know um yeah yes i suppose i'm also very interested in what you said i think towards mm-hmm. the beginning about picking up on the fact that there are the sort of exclusion that you might feel from this very kind of western white mm-hmm. feminism um, and not sort of recognize. I mean, I'm just even just at, while you were chatting then, I was thinking particularly wasn't there very recently. I think it was New Zealand announced that it was giving kind of paid leave to um, uh, women who'd suffered uh, from miscarriages. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of talked about in the press as being the most amazing thing that happened. I mean, mm-hmm. it is really good that it's happening, but it was talked like it was the first. I think it was actually talked about as being the first country that's kind of recognized this. And then I saw something quite soon after that that said it's not. You know, there are non-Western countries who already mm-hmm. give this mm-hmm. kind of leave mm-hmm. to women. But we just, a lot of us in the West, you know, we don't recognize mm-hmm. that. And we don't we don't see mm-hmm. these stories or these kind of other sides of things. Um, and I mean, how, I suppose this is a very personal question I'm asking, but sort of how how excluded do you feel when you're reading, you know, a lot of this sort of very out there kind of, but it is one of white feminism. Does it, does it sort of, does it upset you? Does it make you feel that you want to sort of tell, you want to educate women in different ways? Like how's it, you know, don't know how it feels to you. Hmm. Do I feel ex? Or you do you do you feel excluded, or does it just feel? Do you feel that there's just more that needs to be looked at? I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, even. Hmm. Do I feel excluded? Mm, I guess most of the time, like I feel, I feel like annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfectly reasonable I feeling, I think. I feel it, but I feel I feel annoyed when I read things like, and it's not just about sort of, and and it's not just about being a black woman, for example. I feel annoyed when I read things like, you know, sort of Dolly Parton talking about how, you know, she felt sort of put down by, and which is why she's made such a point of not calling her a feminist, of calling herself a feminist, because you know it was like. A lot of the women she felt to support her were like, oh, she's just a dumb blonde. They were saying the same thing as sort of what the men were saying, even though she's done all this amazing work for so many people. Um, mm. And so, yeah, sometimes I sort of feel annoyed by the, like, I guess the, yeah, I just feel annoyed by the, like, assumptions. Um, and, yeah. and that's why I'm saying that there are assumptions that are sort of quite colonial, sometimes quite imperial, and just sometimes, you know, we do things better here. Yes. And you don't have yes. anything to to teach us. And it's like yes. there's a lot that you can learn from from other cultures, from how other cultures treat women or from how other cultures organize, how women organize in other cultures. Um and I feel like feminism itself, it needs to be there needs to be some sort of it needs to be more inclusive in a in a very broad way, mm. right? Like we need to I mean I I I know very little about the kind of history of the this women's movement in Nigeria that you're telling me about. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Like I'd love to learn more about that. Those sorts mm. of things I feel should be 
I mean, that sort of helps everyone to yeah. learn about these kind of figureheads and this kind of stuff that's happened and these women who have forged ways in, in, in different yes, ways in exactly. different countries across the world, right? Yes, and organised differently and used interesting tactics. Like, for example, I mean, and they are they do call themselves feminists. The Feminist Coalition in Nigeria, um, hmm. they um, did, they raised funds in the NSARS movement to sort of support, you know, protesters. And they pretty much did an amazing blueprint of how you support a movement, but without trying to control it or use it for your own personal ends. Um, and they won so okay. much respect because they were nonpartisan. You know, they were so transparent with the funds because that's always a big issue in like sort of political things in Nigeria. There's, there's very little trust in sort of institutions and people feeling like, you know, mm. we gave to this, what are you doing with the money? Um, and they just, and they crowdfunded most of it. You know, this was online. And yeah, wow. I think they should, um, they are they they are a lesson. They used Bitcoin to raise funds, like you know, way sort of, you know, very very contemporary. Um, and yeah, people anywhere in the world can learn. Men, women, anybody actually can learn from how they organized, um, and how effectively they organized. Um, and how also they organized as a coalition. And so that's what made them so effective so it was like there's no leader of the movement there's no face it's just that we're a coalition mm. um and so then there it's more difficult to divide people when they're united when you haven't pinpointed one person as this is our leader <laughs> um, yes yes of um, course and all those things um yeah so well i'm gonna go and do some reading <laughs> around this subject i need to no i clearly need to go and learn about a kind of a whole a whole realm of kind of amazing women that I had no idea about. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And finally today, uh, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire? Oh, this one was difficult, man. This is like, you know, like... <laughs> hard question, right? Hard question. Like, I have to say my mother, I have to say my grandmother. You know, my grandmother's actually yeah. a legend. Um, so she's one of the... Um, she She just did what she wanted. Um, and this is what I'm saying about sort of, she would ne she would never have used that term feminism, but there was obviously an indigenous mm. ideology that sort of guided her actions um, in her own culture and culture and cultural understanding of a woman's place in the world. Um, she had three husbands. Um, she traveled to Australia. I haven't been to Australia. I don't, I'm like, how has my, gra my, my, <laughs> my grandmother went to Australia like 50 years ago? I'm like, <laughs> um, wow. She was just, did all this this stuff you know she was a teacher she founded a school um she just lived with so much agency um and there's just a great tradition of incredible women and so in this political sphere because i mean it, once upon a time i used to say i wanted to go into politics in nigeria um but okay. you know, the longer you stay away you know you're just you're just like yeah, the longer the longer you've lived in another country, you, you just sort of get more comfortable in another place. So I don't know if this dream will ever materialize, but they're like, well, never, never say, say never. never. There's still, you know, not a lot of time to go. go. <laughs> never say never. But um, like there are three women in particular. They were like a trifecta or something, a triple threat. So in 1999, okay. when we moved from military rule to a democracy, there were three: Dora Aquinoli. Obiezekwesili and Okonje Awela, they all had appointments and they were very prominent women. So Okonje Awela was the Minister of Finance and she's now the head of the World Trade Organization. 
and she's the first woman um and also the first black woman by default <laughs> um yeah. to, to have this position and maybe even the first black person i don't know about this last one but she has lots and lots i think i read that she is the first she's the first mm. african to hold this office mm. i think yeah. yeah she's pretty cool and she did her job as a finance minister really well politics in nigeria is a very difficult terrain and her mm. legacy is sort of spotless there'd be no corruption allegations nothing like that everybody sort of looks back you know she she was just the best at her job you know um and she's just sort of continued after that and obviously now she's sort of head of the wto and yeah she's just um she's just really cool and I, i've met her twice like i don't know her let me state I wow. just met her. I, I think I went for a talk where she was speaking and I sort of met her in the lobby afterwards where she was very graciously milling around. And she was just very normal. <laughs> and, I was, <laughs> and I was like, do you know you're Okonjo Wella? <laughs> do you know who you are, ma'am? Um, and yeah, she just sort of does like her fashion. She always wears sort of Ankara, um, which is a traditional print. She just reps Nigeria mm. wherever she goes and in just a really cool way. So, yeah she's amazing well what a great place to uh to bring this episode to an end and when you do run for political office in the future then our listeners heard it here <laughs> first so <laughs> good luck with that campaign when it finally happens but in the meantime i'm sure you're going to write uh, many more wonderful books so thank you so much for coming on the episode today jibundo it's been a real pleasure to have you here talking about your new book and all these wonderful recommendations thanks for having me Thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Chibundo Nuzo, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.